This morning, I want to focus on what we now call the Great Commission. It wasn't originally called that, but it was a good term, and it stuck. And now that's pretty much universally what people refer to it as. As we come to Mark chapter 16, I feel like I did last this last Wednesday night with the teens and I was trying to teach them. Or perhaps I was with the sixth graders in a substitute teaching at Bremen schools on Thursday. Or maybe when we try to do some sort of devotional time with our kids in the evening at home, there's a certain feeling I get in all these situations. And that is, there is continual distraction. The kids always have something to say, or somebody spills something, or somebody's doing something they shouldn't, or somebody just gets up and walks away, and you know, just you know, they're supposed to be sitting in their seat. It's like I can't get to the what I'm trying to say because I'm constantly reaching out and trying to say, "Hey, you know, stop," or "Hey, you need to do this," or you know, it's just the way it is sometimes when you're dealing with children who are showing a lack of maturity. That is how I feel when I come to Mark chapter 16. There are a lot of distractions in Mark chapter 16. And I I have to deal with the distractions. So I'm going to deal with them briefly. It's necessary for us to deal with them. But I'm looking forward to getting past the distractions and getting to the core concept of the Great Commission. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, is, there's some difficulties here we're getting ready to touch on. Please give me wisdom. Spirit of God, please prepare our hearts to sort through these in a way that would give you glory and strengthen us as God's people. Pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So number one this morning, as I've just alluded to, the distractions of this passage. The distractions of this passage. When I was, I think I was a teenager, I remember, it may not have been my first time, but one of the first times I ever read Mark chapter 16. And I remember reading it and not liking it. It just felt weird. It was different, and it caused question marks in my mind. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Mark chapter 16 and verse 9, and then I'm going to go down through verse 20. I'm going to read it with you, and then we're going to have some discussions. So Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. (coughs) But when they heard it, that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form, two of them, as they were walking in the country. When they went back and told the rest, 
but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So there in your handout, 1A, to omit or not to omit. To omit or not to omit. Depending on your Bible translation, there, there may be brackets around or a note on verse 9. Uh, brackets on verse 9 all the way down through verse 20. And the difficulty is, is that these verses in the Gospel of Mark do not show up in most of the early manuscripts. And this is a difficult matter. It's, it's, it's a hard question for some people. But I'm going to state the truth. We have the bedrock truth that the Bible claims that it is inspired and authoritative and that we have as scriptures, they will be preserved forever, settled in heaven. There is the reality on top of that, that sits on top of that, that and it's an unmistakable reality, nobody can deny it, who understands the manuscripts that God has left for us, that there are minor differences among the manuscripts. And that we, through those who have a high view of Scripture, who believe that the Scripture is inspired, authoritative, and preserved eternally, that we were able to make discerning conclusions when there are differences among the manuscripts. And there are some notorious differences, and this is one of the most notorious ones. So as we deal with this, there are people, most God-fearing people who know, they've studied these things, they're scholars, and they have a high view of Scripture. They believe that God's Word is eternally inspired and preserved. Many, if not most, are going to recognize that these verses, verses 9 through 20, were added after the fact by somebody who was well-meaning. And there were other portions of Scripture where this likely happened. Most Bible translations are still going to include them because they don't say anything that's necessarily inaccurate. They basically take and condense the endings from the other three Gospels and put them here as well. 
For those who like to study and think through all these things, and I want to spend time on it this morning, but I just want to let you know there are legitimate reasons. The style here, the wording, the way things are phrased is totally different than the way Mark wrote in the rest of the gospel. So lots of good reasons to question it. So when I say to omit or not to omit, there's nothing wrong, and this is what most translations have chosen to do, to leave this in here. It doesn't distract. It doesn't cause a problem per se. I guess it's distracting if you don't, aren't familiar with it. But it is something we need to understand. This happens among the scriptures. There are times when there are differences among manuscripts, and we have to make decisions. You also need to know when this happens, it doesn't affect any major doctrine of scripture. There is no concern. There's no question about what God's word teaches. There is no, no way of saying that there's a major conflict so we don't know what God wants us to know among the manuscripts. Among these body of manuscripts, it is unquestionable we know what God, want, we know what God wants us to know. If you have more questions, please come talk to me. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to strengthen your faith that we have God's word. He has promised us that he will preserve it, and he has But in his wisdom, he has allowed some differences. And this is one of the most glaring ones. I wanted to give you the other, I meant to put this on your handout, but I forgot the other great commission passages. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Luke Chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. And I'll go through this one more time. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The Great Commission passage that most of God's people are familiar with is Matthew 28, the first one. That's the one most of us are familiar with, but there are variations, sometimes great variations, but the same basic idea that Jesus commissions his disciples to go. So Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Luke 24, verses 44 through 53. John Chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. That one is perhaps the most different out of all of them. And then finally, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Although it's not fun to talk about things like what we talked about with the the differences of text, I have the philosophy as a pastor that we need to talk about it. Because if you do not understand what we believe and then what God has allowed with the manuscripts of the scriptures, then somebody who does not believe and wants to pervert the gospel can weaken your faith. So I choose to address it and to bring it up. And if we need to, it's a conversation starter and we can talk more in private. So the first distraction was to omit or not to omit. Next is salvation and baptism. On your handout there, 1B, salvation 
in baptism. Verse 16 of Mark 16 makes it sound like on the surface that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And according to the overwhelming witness of the rest of our New Testaments, we know that is not the case. However, there are many passages in the New Testament, especially in Acts, where baptism was such a logical conclusion, logical response to those who have just professed Christ that they looked at it as just one event. It happened around the same time. But that is not teaching, and the New Testament does not teach that you must be baptized in order to be saved. Very clearly. And one great example of that is the thief on the cross. When he professed his belief in Christ, Jesus turns to him and says, Today you will see me in paradise. That guy didn't get to get off the cross and get baptized. So baptism is not required for you to be saved, to become a follower of Christ, although it is a logical response. It is an expected response. Many people will call it uh, the first step of obedience for the Christian's life is believer's baptism. Because what you are doing when you get wet and go through the rite of baptism is demonstrated, demonstrating what happened to you spiritually. The moment you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes you and identifies you with Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, Romans chapter 6. And so water baptism is doing is showing the outward sign, the demonstration of what happened to you spiritually that moment you believed in Christ. A lot of things happen the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. A lot of things. And one of them is Holy Spirit baptism. And when the Holy Spirit identifies you and joins you with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he also, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, joins you, bonds you to the universal church, the body of of Christ. Lots of things happen there, but it is inaccurate to teach that baptism is required for salvation. On face value, Mark 6.16 sounds like that's what it's teaching. That's where you have to look at the rest of the scriptures to have a proper understanding. Next, 1C, signs and wonders. Talks about the healing of snakes and even the drinking of poison. And everything else that was mentioned besides the drinking of poison has some sort of um, connection to what the apostles did um, or experienced, but the drinking of poison has no connection to the rest of the New Testament. However, signs and wonders, it's played up greater here than what is in the rest of the New Testament. We see in the book of Acts especially that signs and wonders, and we heard it this morning in Acts chapter 15, did accompany the apostles' ministry. Nowhere in our New Testaments is it a command or an expectation that will continue on in God's church. It was something that accompanied Jesus and accompanied the apostles is a matter of authentication of their ministry. But nowhere is there an expectation taught or requirement taught that it will continue in gospel ministry in God's church forever to the end of the age. Sometimes we hear of special things that happened 
And although we should not downplay it, we should not expect it. Perhaps there are special things that happen in, special, in parts of the world where they're especially dark, but the general overwhelming experience of God's people and gospel ministry during this part of the age is not signs and wonders. Okay, I've got through the things that can be distracting about this passage, but I believe they are necessary to address so we can dive into the part that I really want to focus on today. So number two, the audience of this passage. The audience of this passage. Do you want to know the secret weapon of every child? I think you already know it, but I was reminded of it even last night in my house. The secret weapon of every child is what I didn't hear you. They act as if they didn't hear what we asked them to do or they somehow adjusted their attention in a way they knew they had a requirement being communicated to them, but they somehow were distracted so they could not hear it. And what I'm hoping this morning is that if that in some similarity is happening in you as a follower of Christ, that you know that you have a requirement placed upon you from your Lord in this great commission that you are not making an excuse and saying, well, you know, it doesn't apply to me or I didn't hear or whatever. I'm hoping as adults, if that is going on, that the Spirit of God would rebuke us for that. So as we talk about the audience of this passage, Jesus spoke this command, this expectation to his disciples, and perhaps he spoke it multiple times in those 40 days before he ascended in different settings. Um, the audience was the original apostles and the company that was there with them. There was a lot of people. However, this command to the apostles and their broader company did not just stop with them. The wording of the command and the expectation of the command is that it would continue in God's church until Jesus returns. So that means obedient followers of Christ in this part of the age that we are in are going to be concerned with obeying this command. It's going to be a part of their thinking as they organize their schedules if they are going to be obedient. Some of you have heard me talk about William Carey. Three, four hundred years ago, I can't remember the specific dates. I think it was the early 1700s, maybe it was the 1600s. Um, William Carey is called the father of modern missions. William Carey, a young man, a younger man, and he was a clergy in England, and he was going to a meeting of men, of pastors, and he brought up, you know, why aren't we fulfilling the Great Commission in this pastor's meeting? And one of the older men told him to sit down and shut up, basically. There was a prevailing attitude at that time among church leadership that they did not need to fulfill this outside of their own locale, their own town. 
And William Carey, in time, wrote a pamphlet. You can get it on the Internet. And the title is just back when they had long titles for their books or pamphlets or essays. He wrote, here's the title, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. That was his title. If you want to look that up, you can. And it's, it's very um, applicable. It's very convicting. But he basically lays out reasons why the great commission that Jesus gave to his apostles applied to them, but also to us today. It is generally accepted today among evangelical churches that the great commission does apply to us today. But I think we got that church idea. But I want to take that church idea that we've generally accepted today and I want you to think about your own life. Do you have, we're not even talking about how you can fulfill it, but do you have a good conscience before the Lord right now that you are an obedient Christian in this matter of God's expectation for you to give the good news of Jesus? Do you have a good conscience that you are obeying God. You are making this. I'm not saying it's going to be every moment of every day. But you have given this priority in your life. Because it applies to you. I'd like for you to move from the whole church idea. That we know we're supposed to be doing the Great Commission to yourself. Number three, let's talk about the application of this passage. Let's get specific. Number three, the application of this passage. There, I think the application of the Great Commission has been, I know on several of you here in our church, it's been on your heart, especially in the last year, year and a half. You've been talking about it. You've been bringing it up because you desire to see God work through you, through our church for the salvation of folks. Let's get into the specifics. There are so many different ways, a lot of different ways you can apply this. And here is what I want to make sure as we seek to apply this, we also have a certain attitude about how we apply it. And here's the attitude I want to make sure we have. That we give liberty, broad liberty, broad freedom to one another on how we apply it. Because there are so many different ways we can apply it. Someone may be intentionally applying this principle in a way you never would have thought of or you're not even interested in. And yet you're doing it in a different way. But the, the thrust this morning that I'm trying to make here is, are you obeying in this way, intentionally and specifically? And now, as I mention some ways, I'm going to mention the ways that we all have heard about, but I'm hopefully going to mention a few more that might get your mind going in case God is speaking to you and saying, hey, you need to get to work. The most obvious application is the proclamation, the preaching, the teaching of the good news of Jesus. It happens at this pulpit, happens in our Sunday school rooms, it happens 
um, perhaps in our homes as we're teaching our children at home, that is the official act of preaching and teaching that should be happening from this pulpit, from the lecterns in our Sunday school rooms, in our homes as we open up our Bibles in our homes and speak about it as a family. And so then we are strengthening one another and instructing one another and especially instructing the children in our lives to make sure they have heard the good news and we pray that they will respond to the good news and believe. And this is something that you can be a part of. One of the ways that many people try to not hear like a child or to, to escape responsibility. He says, I'm not a preacher. I don't know anything. I, you know, and they start him hauling around and make an excuse. But every follower of Christ has the ability and the expectation to communicate the good news to the people in their lives, in their home, in their relationships around them. Next, I want to talk about what we call today witnessing, witnessing. So the reason we use the word witnessing is because one of the theme words of the book of Acts is the idea of being a witness. Jesus commands them. Luke uses the word, the author of Acts, Luke uses the word um, that Jesus commands them to go be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Witness to what? A witness to what they had saw and knew and believed of Jesus himself, about his death, his burial, and his resurrection, about his earthly ministry, about his ascension into heaven, and how he's going to come back someday in the clouds. All these things that Jesus has spoken to them and then eventually was inscripturated for us we speak of these things to other people in our lives. How you speak to them, when you speak to them, you have broad liberty. The way you do it may be totally different than someone else, but what is important is this matter of salvation about Christ and who He is to you is a part of your speech intentionally in your life as you have relationships with others. Is bringing up Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has done a rare event in your life? I wouldn't call that obedience. Now, my point this morning, and I believe this is right, is that I am not trying to make you feel guilty. If guilt is your only motivation, you are going to be a miserable Christian. I am just pointing to what is, if you are a true follower of Christ, not just in name only, but not really a Christian. If you are a true follower of Christ, this is what the Holy Spirit is going to be touching on your heart about. Your motivation comes from God, not from a pastor guilting you. And it doesn't mean that, and some people are this way and it's because they have an extra burden and an extra gift in this area where their whole life, that's all they talk about. Some people who are gifted to be evangelists and they just go in the way you would never dream of going. But for the rest of us, you have a God-given motivation if you are a child of God that the good news has changed your life and you're going to speak about it. You're going to be a witness to that because it means something to you. And so this is not a matter of guilt. 
And it doesn't mean that your full day is going to be consumed with this. But what it does mean is a matter of obedience is that you have made priority with it. Just as the New Testament makes clear to you that you are to make priority for God's church. If God's church always gets the short change in your life, you're not obeying. You're not, God, you're not following Christ in obedience. Same thing for this matter of witnessing or giving the good news. If it gets the short change and hardly ever happens, you're not an obedient Christian. As followers of Christ, if we are going to obey Christ, we adopt his priorities, and that is reflected in our schedule. And that is exceptionally hard here in America because we have freedom, we have wealth, there's so much opportunity. We're constantly getting distracted. So we talked about the official act of preaching and teaching that we all can be a part of, at least on the teaching end. We talked about what we call today is witnessing. Another thing is tract distribution. We have these tracts, these little pamphlets in a rack out here. Some people, this is, this is not one of my favorite methods, but some people love this method. They take one of those, those pamphlets out there out of the rack, and they're, they're phrased in different ways, and they point different scriptures, and they like to give them to folks, or they like to leave them somewhere. So it gets somebody thinking about the good news of Jesus. That's a good way. Another one is evangelism programs. Now, our church hasn't done one, a study on one since I've been here, but they are helpful tools. There are programs like Evangelism Explosion, and there's so many different others. The Exchange Program that people study and they formulate um, scripture references and you memorize scripture references and you look at all these things and you study it so that when you have those opportunities to talk to somebody, you have kind of pre-thought, you've got a preview and you've memorized things so that way you're not um, struggling over your words and stuttering when you do have those opportunities. It becomes, it comes out of your mouth more natural because you spent six, 12 weeks studying it just to help your mind get in gear. That's legitimate. The only thing I have as a reservation about some of those programs is they act as if you follow this formula, you will get results. And I'm a little uncomfortable with that. But the value of that is, is it helps you put it into words and you've practiced it so that way when you have the opportunity to share, you are ready. My opinion, and I'm not going to elevate this opinion any higher, it's just my opinion, is we're talking about applications, about obeying God in this manner. My opinion is that the best possibility for gospel impact is to live among the people and spend time with the people you are trying to reach. Many times, God's people, and remember this is just my opinion, many times God's people rely on chance encounters or these five-minute conversations when you're out in the community or giving somebody a tract that you don't know or they rely on a church program to sow the gospel seed. And God does use all of these. Don't misunderstand me. But this is what we rely on sometimes, in my opinion, is that there is a great, much greater chance to reach the heart when we have 
been together over time. We have eaten together. We had shared life together. When we were not strangers to one another, when we're not strangers to another, defenses come down and authentic, organic relationships happen and real conversations about life happen that can only happen once you've been together and had a relationship for quite a while. So my opinion is that the best opportunity for gospel impact is to live among the people, be among the people, spend time with them. Let those defenses come down and you can have real conversation. But in order for you to have those relationships, you've got to change your schedule to make sure they happen. But sometimes God will use your gospel seed and you have no, you don't really know the person or you only talk to the person five minutes a month or whatever. God can use those too. Don't be discouraged with that. But I'll just give you my opinion again that I think there's a greater chance for gospel impact when you have ordered your day, your schedule, your life so that you can be around unbelievers and have a relationship with them and have real conversations over days, months, years even. Okay, so let's transition for our application today. The question, which is the title today, is are you making a great omission? God has given you a great commission that needs to be a priority in your life. Are you making a great omission in your life? by not making that a part of your schedule. At least a consideration every week for you. Are you leaning in to God and His requirements, or are you making excuses and hardly ever getting around to them? Are you leaning into God's church, or is God's church getting the leftovers? Are you leaning into sharing the good news, or is that just happening on a rare exception? Are you intentionally structuring your life so you can form long-term relationships with unbelievers prayerfully looking to be used for their salvation? That's expensive, folks. It takes time. Time resources. And you may have to stop chasing after some opportunities in your life so that you can have those types of relationships. There's a lot of Christian folks who are involved with a lot of good things, but they're never quite making it around to making time to form relationships with unbelievers so they can share the good news. My challenge to you is change your schedule, make it happen. And then trust God for the results. Let's take a few minutes and respond to the Lord.